Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. The police made a sport out of arresting gay men, especially in go to restrooms to entrap gay men, or they just try to entrap a gay man on the street. They hated us, and they were out allowed to use the law to act on it and lock you up for it. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Andrew, an Outcasting Youth participant. This month, June 2019, marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. In 1969, the Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in New York City's Greenwich Village. In those days, police raids of gay bars were commonplace. Newspapers often printed the names, and sometimes the photos, of people arrested during these raids. Being publicly outed as LGBTQ in this way could lead to the loss of homes, jobs, and families. During one such raid on a hot night in late June 1969, patrons at the Stonewall Inn rose up and fought against the police. This led to a series of riots over the next several nights. In the wake of the Stonewall Uprising, new activist groups were formed and took hold, and the Stonewall Uprising thus marked a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Many of the pride marches around the world commemorate the events at Stonewall in June 1969. Here at Outcasting, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising by talking with Andy Hum, a veteran gay journalist and activist based in New York City. On this series, we discuss LGBTQ history and activism since before Stonewall and how things have changed since then. This is part one of a series. Andy Hum, welcome to Outcasting. Thank you, Andrew. We're now celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, often considered the spark of the modern gay rights movement. That's not necessarily true, since it was more of a marker of a turning point than a cause of the turning point. But either way, Stonewall marked significant changes in the gay rights movement. So we want to use this anniversary to look back on the modern gay rights movement. So we're going to start talking about what life was like for LGBTQ people before the early activism of the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society. So first of all, what were some of the laws against LGBTQ people at that point? Well, they've had laws against sodomy, meaning even consensual gay lovemaking forever. Even in the United States of America, we had the death penalty for sodomy back in colonial days. Thomas Jefferson tried to change that to castration and was unsuccessful. So the laws were terrible. I mean, even in Great Britain, the last people to be hanged for sodomy were, was it in about 1830-something, I think. So the laws were terrible. But they kept those sodomy laws on the books for a long, 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 long time. So we were sort of a criminal class. And of course, every major religion condemned us. It was, a, it was not a good scene. But having said all that, Gay people always found each other. People always had relationships. Obviously, they had to be done sub rosa. There's a famous thing that lesbians did. They had what they called Boston marriages, where two women would get together and live together. Maybe they would just refer to in the town as spinsters or something, but they were lovers. So we always had gay life, but it took a long, long time for people to be able to live openly. So at that point, how were gay people able to identify each other? 
Well, we all have gaydar, don't we? Uh, I, I think people pick up on the way people look at each other. Sometimes those things are misinterpreted. I mean, I've read things in the 1890s where men would parade around with red ties uh, in order to be seen. And there, there always seemed to develop places that gay people could go. In New York, there were bars that might not have been completely gay, but people knew that they could go there and meet other men who were like themselves. There were places in parks. In Greenwich Village, which has sort of been a a place for gay people for a long, long time, uh, there were various streets where people knew that they could walk. And the police, yes, would harass people, and they'd have to move on, and then they'd find another street, but uh, they've been doing that for years. So at that point, what were the consequences of being found out that you were gay? Well, you could be arrested, you could be put in jail, you could serve a long prison sentence. I mean, I'm 65 years old, but I know guys in their 80s, and it's it's hard to find any of them who didn't have one bad experience with the law where they were arrested and... Oftentimes it was a shakedown. They just want to get some money out of you or you'd have to pay a lot of money for this lawyer who would get you out of trouble. It was very, very rough. And of course, you know, if you tried to live an open life, you were limiting your chances of employment severely. So very few people in very few professions were able to be anything like out I mean, look what happened to Oscar Wilde, after all. He was put in jail for two years in the 1890s and died shortly thereafter. So starting with pre-Stonewall activism in the 1950s, tell us about the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society and their significance. Actually, there's an earlier gay group in Illinois called the Society for Individual Rights, I think, SIR, in like the 1920s in Illinois, you know, which was sort of people getting together. And... Even the people who formed the Mattachine Society in 1950, uh, they had had an earlier group called Bachelors for Wallace because Henry Wallace was a leftist and he had been vice president of the United States and uh, they wanted him to be president of the United States in 1948. So they formed that group because a lot of the people who formed the early groups were leftists. Uh, It didn't stay that way for long, but people like Harry Hay, uh, who was one of the main founders of the Mattachine Society, was. And they are people who got together, starting in California, and then they formed chapters around the country, to try to advocate for themselves in some way. And sometimes that meant standing up for somebody who'd been arrested on a morals charge and trying to break that. The Daughters of Belitis was a lesbian group that, again, started more of a social group. And then uh, back in 1955, which was two years after I was born, and one of the founders I know is still alive, Phyllis Lyon with Del Martin. Uh, So... Again, these groups started sort of, it was a way just for people to be with each other, which itself was kind of very dangerous, but they did it. And that sort of started the ball rolling in the movement. So in the 50s, were gay activists focused more on assimilation into mainstream society or rebellion from it? Well, I mean, obviously, most gay people tried to assimilate, tried to live underground, essentially. Most gay Gay people, in order to survive, had to enter heterosexual marriages. Sometimes a lesbian and a gay man would get married for cover, but most didn't. And, and of course, this was very bad for the whole family. Uh, and sometimes you'd have, you know, you'd have sex on the side or a partner on the side, whatever. It was a, it was a terrible situation. And of course, World War II happened. 
That brought a lot of gay people from around the country to the big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, right? As their ports of departure for the war. And when they got to these cities, they did see there were a lot of people living a gay life and they never went back to Iowa. They stayed here and there was a certain level of tolerance, but the laws were bad. I mean, I live in New York. Uh, the laws were bad for a long time. We didn't even get rid of the sodomy laws in New York until 1980 through a court order. So tell us about Frank Kameny and government policies towards gay people. Frank Kameny had a personal experience of discrimination in the 1950s, and he was uh, working for the government as an astronomer, which was his profession, and when they found out that he was gay, they fired him, and he didn't take it. He decided to bring a lawsuit against the government to try to get reinstated. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was refused by them, but uh, he explored every opportunity. Many, many years later, President Obama had him into the White House when he signed an order covering federal employees from discrimination, although that had been done somewhat by previous presidents. Even Jimmy Carter had gays in the White House. So Frank was sort of the original activist in many ways, public activist, and he was a very fierce speaker and he was relentless. I mean, he once appeared before a committee in Congress early on in the, this is in the 60s, and they said, you know, uh, does your organization have, uh, you know, uh, as we're reading uh, hundreds of thousands of members? And he said, we hope to, Senator, we hope to. <laughs> you know, he was very unapologetic. And he coined the term, gay is good. Because some of the early people, in even some of the gay groups, there were gay groups in New York, including Mattachine to some extent, a little bit, they would have speakers in to tell us how sick we were. Because under the American Psychiatric Association, we were classified as mentally ill people up until 1973. And by the way, that was a huge breakthrough when activists worked with sympathetic psychiatrists to get us removed from the index of mental disorders. It's amazing that they were able to do that in 1973 because the movement was so young in those days. So by the 60s, were gay activists more willing to reject mainstream society or consider themselves more radical? I wouldn't call it radical until after Stonewall, really. You had people like Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. You had those people, but there were very few people who took a radical attitude towards activism until Stonewall. And that's why Stonewall is so significant. There had been some previous rebellions that we've read about, right? There was Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco, where a lot of transgender and drag queens and gay men hung out at night in San Francisco, and they were harassed by the police, and they fought back and threw coffee at them and demonstrated. And that led to a little bit of organizing. But the reason Stonewall is so significant in 1969, so you had this rebellion, and it went on for six nights of people throwing things and marching around the village. But in the midst of that, the Gay Liberation Front was founded and organized right then and there. People went off to a room and they did it. And then within short order, you had groups proliferating all over the country. Now, again, these weren't the first demonstrations. I mean, Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and others did those things called the annual reminder picket at Independence Hall, I believe starting in 1965. And even before that, there's an activist named Randy Wicker who 
picketed the selective service system, the draft board, because they were classifying us as mentally ill. And that was the first public demonstration in the United States. It was in 1964, right in downtown New York. But again, that didn't lead to a lot of ongoing organizing. Things just exploded after Stonewall. Why do you think it was that, you know, before Stonewall, gay activists were sort of shying away from, you know, ideas of radicalism or kind of outright rebellion? I would say, A, because they wanted to live, and B, because they wanted to keep their jobs. I mean, it was a matter of survival. You know, I used to work with uh, gay youth when I was at the Hetrick Martin Institute, and when it came to advising people about coming out in those days, and I'm talking about the mid-80s, you'd have to say, you can't be sure how your parents are going to react unless you're absolutely sure that's going to be fine, and it's very hard to do that. You better have another place to stay because parents often throw their kids out when they're gay. Obviously, that happens a lot less. People are coming out in younger and younger ages now, and that's terrific, but it's still hard for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the country and certainly in a lot of parts of the world. I mean, the idea of openly gay people in some societies, if you want to talk about Uganda or Russia or these places, it's very, 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 very tough. So what was life like for LGBTQ people living in San Francisco or New York or other major cities in the 60s? Before Stonewall, there was gay culture. People had partners. I have friends who were together in those days and are together to this day. They're very old. But people met each other and encountered each other and, uh, you know, got together. It's not a new thing. But they lived pretty discreet lives. You had to be fairly discreet. It was very hard to come out on the job. And I understand there were very few images of gay people in the media. I mean, there were gay, some gay images of mo- and gay people in the movies, right, since they invented the form. And they used to have sissy characters in some of the movies in the 1930s and 40s and beyond. But they were not generally positive images. They were just all we had. Uh, so it was a matter of leading a rather discreet life. You had to, I mean, and I wouldn't say those people were self-hating. What choice did they have? For instance, take, take here's an example. E.M. Forster is a famous novelist, right? He wrote Howard's End and Passage to India, English novelist, right? He wrote a gay book in 19, starting in 1913, I think, called Morris, based on his own gay experiences. He didn't allow it to be published until after his death in 1970 became a movie. But I mean, that's what you had to do. You had to sort of cover things up. There were some writers like Gore Vidal who wrote gay-themed books in the 60s. And he didn't even publicly identify as a gay man, although he obviously was. But because of the content of the book that he wrote, the New York Times was so horrified, they wouldn't review his books for about 15 years. And he's a very famous novelist. So what sorts of discrimination did LGBTQ people face from the law and the police at that point? Well, the police made a sport out of arresting gay men, especially in, like, they'd go to restrooms to entrap gay men, or they just try to entrap a gay man on the street. They hated us, and they were out allowed to use the law to act on it and lock you up for it. And that's something that continues to this day in many parts of the country. It's absolutely outrageous. I mean, you don't even have to be doing anything. They just figure, you look gay, I'll arrest you, and the court will believe me. Now, that's why we had to get rid of the sodomy laws. But again, they still go after people for solicitation. And to this day, they still go after transgender people just for walking down the street. They say, oh, you're prostituting yourself, even though you're just transgender and you're just walking down the street. This is Outcasting. 
Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. June 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, a series of riots that marked a major turning point in LGBTQ activism. Our guest on this Outcasting series is veteran gay journalist and activist Andy Hum. We're talking about how LGBTQ life and activism have evolved over the decades. So tell us about the rebellion at Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco in 1966. Compton's was a place you could go late at night to get a meal, uh, partly because if you were trans or drag queen, you often had trouble getting into the gay bars, such as they were. And so this is where they could hang out. Compton's didn't particularly like it. This was in the Tenderloin District, and they would often call the police to get them out of there. But uh, in 1966, trans people... Drag queens, gay men were there, and you know, the police people who owned Comptons once once again wanted there to be a sweep of Comptons, and the police got rough. So the patrons fought back, threw coffee at the police. Uh, there was a melee, and the police are always shocked when gay people or trans people or drag queens or anybody fights back. This was at a time, by the way, when cross dressing was illegal. You had to wear clothing appropriate to your gender, or you could be arrested just for that. So that's how the police used to go after it. But I've read about the Comptons thing, and there was some organizing that sort of grew out of it, where people protested a bit and tried to form an organization to stand up for themselves. But the point is, you know, and the reason, again, Stonewall is so important is because it it's not something that was very sustained. So three years later, in 1969, the Stonewall rebellions happened in New York City, perhaps the most famous moment in LGBTQ history. So what happened in the build-up to Stonewall? Well, building up to the Stonewall, you have to understand the context of 1969. You've already had the civil rights movement, right? Martin Luther King, all that. Martin Luther King was, you know, uh, murdered in 1968. Politics was very fractious in the United States. If you think it's fractious now, I mean, there were there were a lot of riots in the streets in those days. African-Americans had risen up in their communities, and there were riots all over the place. People died in those riots. So there was something in the air. And a lot of gay people were involved in the civil rights movement, whether they were African-American or Caucasian. They were in the, involved in the civil rights movement. And many people were involved in the anti-war movement in 1969. So there was that revolution in the air kind of thing going on. So these were the kind of people, when you oppressed them, when you went after them, they were more willing to protest. Now, who was at the Stonewall? The Stonewall was mostly street kids, for the most part, and it was not a very nice place uh, from everything I've read. According to Tommy Lanigan Schmidt, who was about 18 at the time, and it was there. It was a place where they allowed you to dance and touch each other. Because in gay bars, even in New York, you weren't allowed to touch each other without being thrown out of the bar. I'm talking about just like touching on the shoulder or giving a hug or something like that. So this was a, a, a great thing. So police routinely raided gay bars in those days, usually because they didn't get their payoff from the mafia who ran the bars. And in this case, this was just people got their noses out of joint as they started to take people out of the bar to load them into the police wagon people started to fight back and then people started fighting back within the bar outside the bar throwing things the police ended up having to barricade themselves inside the bar for protection they thought they were going to die 
And this raid was overseen by Inspector Pine, his name was. I don't think it's nice that they were raiding gay bars, but I will give him credit for one thing. He told the police inside that bar, don't use your guns, don't fire at anybody until I say so. Because they were throwing garbage cans at the window, they threw a Molotov cocktail at the place. Everybody was pretty scared. And I think the LGBT people who were part of this rebellion were sort of surprised at themselves that they were standing up to the police. Eventually, they burned a police car. And this, again, this thing went on for six nights. And it's part of it is due to the fact of the way, if you've ever been down to Greenwich Village where the Stonewall was or is, or there's still a bar there called Stonewall. It's not the original one. But the streets are labyrinthine. They, they go all over the place and you can go around corners very quickly and easily and it's not like a grid like the rest of the city. So they played cat and mouse for six nights. It was terrific. By the way, uh, Dick Leitch, if you know that name, he just died last year. He was the head of the Mattachine Society at the time and he wrote an in-person report that night about what happened. And one of the things he said, you know, before Stonewall, nobody was gay. After Stonewall, everybody was gay. The whole idea of coming out, people felt empowered, was just contagious among people. But the main group that came out of Stonewall was the Gay Liberation Front, a radical group, which only lasted for about two years, but it was important. So what was the immediate effect of Stonewall on the LGBTQ rights movement? Well, I mentioned that the Gay Liberation Front was organized, but then other groups started sprouting off that or from that, and it just gave people a sense that we can do something about the situation that we're in, and we're going to fight back. So there were all kinds of demonstrations and zaps. There were so many injustices to fight in those days because we had no rights whatsoever. And so when people were discriminated against, maybe there'd be a picket line there. The Gay Activists Alliance was formed shortly thereafter, simply focusing on gay rights. And then the Lesbian Feminist Liberation was formed. And then by 1973, you started to have some institutionalization. You know, groups like Lambda Legal Defense were formed. It just blossomed. The movement blossomed. You know, again, I joined the Dignity Group for gay Catholics, that was like formed, I think, around 1969. And I think that the Metropolitan Community Church is even older than that. Religious groups started to come up and things just got rolling very, very fast. So you mentioned earlier that it wasn't really until after Stonewall that gay activists were willing to consider themselves radical or sort of rise up against mainstream society. Why do you think it was that Stonewall had that effect? Well, I think it was kind of radical just to live a gay life prior to Stonewall. I mean, just to give yourself a gay life, to have a partner, to go to a gay establishment, to live the life, that was kind of a radical thing in itself. And as I said, there were a few people who ventured out into the streets and had some picketing demonstrations, very respectful, either at the White House or at Independence Hall in Philadelphia or elsewhere around the country. They used to have this annual thing in Philadelphia. It was called the annual reminder from the mid-60s to right up to Stonewall. And the year of Stonewall, because this was always held on July the 4th, the year of Stonewall, 
That's so July the 4th is right after Stonewall because Stonewall happened in June. Then a lot of the more radical people came down to Philadelphia and they weren't willing to put on suits and ties and dresses. Uh, and when I say dresses, I mean the lesbians were told they had to wear dresses at the annual reminder uh, that Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings used to organize and jeans wearing radicals and everybody came out. And, and so that was the last time they did that. But there were demonstrations all the time after that. So in 1970, the East Coast Homophile Organization organized the Christopher Street Liberation Day March to commemorate the first anniversary of Stonewall. What was the purpose of this march? Well, that was a coalition, and uh, especially Craig Rodwell from New York, who ran the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, which was around even before Stonewall, uh, said, we need to do something on the anniversary of our, our rebellion and there was some resistance to this, but enough people organized that said they were going to do it. They had no idea what was going to happen. So they started putting up posters around town saying, we're going to have a march and it's going to be on the Sunday, which is closest to the anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. And they just didn't even know if anybody was going to show up. And they were kind of scared because they were going to be marching en masse from Greenwich Village all the way up to Central Park for a rally. And... Maybe in the beginning, hundreds of people showed up in the village, and the police only gave them half of 6th Avenue. So there was traffic running by on the avenue next to them, and they said they were so scared because they'd gotten a lot of death threats when they said they were going to do this. They almost ran all the way up to Central Park, and by the time they got to the park, there were thousands of people in the park. The march stretched 15 blocks, and they had this sort of gay in in the park. You can Google it and look at the beautiful footage of this thing. And can you imagine, in a society where you'd never seen so many gay people together, here they all were. And boy, that gives you a real sense of empowerment. I didn't join, really, the movement much until 1975 or 74, but when we had our first march on Washington in 1979, I had the same experience. We didn't know how many people were going to come down to Washington from all over the country. And when I saw all these thousands of people, I cried. You know, even though I'd been an activist for many years already, uh, it just was so moving and empowering. So tell us about some of the other marches that this inspired. First of all, you know, people started organizing pride marches. And they did come up with that word pride. It's interesting. Apparently, they had a debate in 1970. What are we going to call this? And some people wanted to call it gay power. And then some people said, we don't have any power. I mean, gay power was a, a chant of the day. But uh, they said, we want to show that we have pride in who we are. So the word pride came into it. But it was called the Christopher Street Gay Liberation March that year. And then for many years, it was just called the Christopher Street Liberation Day March before it changed into now they in New York, they call it something like Heritage of Pride. In uh, uh, San Francisco, they call it the, I believe they call it the Freedom Day, Para Freedom Day Parade. And of course, now it's done all over the world. I mean, we constantly hear from tiny little towns all over the country because I do the Gay USA show and we report on these things. Tiny little towns having pride marches. And then, of course, the people who really take the biggest risk are these people in Uganda, in 
Moscow, who will get shut down by the police if they try to do it. In some of these Eastern European countries, there has to be tremendous protection by the, by the police or even the army for some people to march down the street. And in many cases, they just try to shut it down. But it is something that has proliferated around the world. That's all the time we have for now. But we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Andy Hum, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Andrew. Andy joined us from his home in New York City. This has been part one of a series. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Amelie, Dante, Lucas, Drew, and me, Andrew. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, more information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.